Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. It is Groundhog Day, a day that is meaningless only, entirely meaningless, except for the fact that it did give birth to uh, one of the 10 or 15 best American movies, Groundhog Day. Otherwise, apparently there's going to be six more weeks of winter. Like, there wasn't going to be six more weeks of winter. So, buckle down for the winter, I guess. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, winter lover, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, sufferer of a winter cold. Yes, not a winter uh, lover. Media commentary <laughs> columnist and American Enterprise Institute senior fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And snow shoveler extraordinaire. Not that there's been any snow. Did you get any snow this weekend? We, yeah, there's just been yesterday. there's been dustings and coatings, much to my yeah. kids' consternation. There better be because my snowblower has a full tank of gas in it, and otherwise I'm going to have to siphon that garbage, get it all over myself. So better start snowing. Snowing. Okay, that of course is associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Guys, we have two a couple of things to talk about. Want to talk about Ron DeSantis and the uh, African American AP course controversy? But um, I, I was struck by a headline in the Washington Post yesterday about how Hunter Biden's lawyers, among them a uh, longtime Washington, whenever some Democrat is in trouble, here he comes, Abby Lowell, uh, showing up with a newly aggressive strategy. And here is the newly aggressive strategy. Hunter Biden's lawyers are urging prosecutors, I guess, in Wilmington and New York and elsewhere to go after the evil people who disseminated in, in information from Hunter Biden's laptop, a laptop that maybe this is the first official point uh, moment in which Hunter Biden's team has actually acknowledged that the laptop that was left in a Wilmington computer repair shop in April of 2019 is in fact Hunter Biden's laptop. Now it's his laptop. They didn't have any right to do what they did with his laptop and uh, and they should all be prosecuted. Rudy Giuliani and the laptop owner and the New York Post and Tucker Carlson and, and your Aunt Gertie and whoever else did Hunter dirt. Now we did a little forensic examination here before the podcast began which is to say that i read through a wikipedia entry for about 15 seconds and here's what we have sequentially hunter drops off the laptop at the wilmington delaware store owned by a man named mcisaac i was gonna say i think his name is john mcisaac but i was gonna say oscar mcisaac because of the actor oscar isaac but anyway Guy is legally blind, so he says he doesn't know whether it was Hunter Biden because he couldn't see a face. Laptop is dropped off, never comes back for it, has some water damage. That's April 2019. Some point in the fall of 2019, he realizes that this is Hunter Biden's laptop, and he contacts the FBI to say, I've got this laptop. Or the FBI serves him with a subpoena, excuse me, the Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, see, I don't even remember what it said in the in the stupid Wikipedia entry. The Wilmington, Delaware uh, DA or something like that uh, comes and takes the laptop, seizes the laptop because it is looking into Hunter's practices. Here it is. Uh, the FBI the FBI seized it in December 19 under the authority of a subpoena issued by a Wilmington grand jury that had been investigating Hunter Biden for financial matters since 2018. Okay? So that is December of 2019. McIsaac says there was a point at which he, the laptop became his property. And once the laptop was his property, he then felt comfortable he did a deep dive in it, and then he contacted Giuliani. Now, as our own Christine pointed out, uh, the thing is when you leave things at a repair place to, you know, or whatever, and you leave it there for too long, whatever the document is that you signed that hands it over to them says, well, if you never don't recover it, it becomes the property of the laptop owner. So it's Hunter a policy Biden's called finders keepers. <laughs> 
Right. Or, 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 you know, <laughs> levers yeah. keepers. Yeah. Levers keepers. <laughs> right. So, um, so under this, uh, Mr. McGuire, John Paul McIsaac owned the laptop, gave it to Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani then gave it to the New York Post. The New York Post published it. And did Hunter Biden say, hey, that's my laptop. Give it back. No, his father said no. that's Russian disinformation. <laughs> his father Every- and 50 former oh. intelligence officials said, boy, you know, let me tell you, the Russians, they're so good at everything. They manufactured a laptop with hundreds of photos and thousands of files from Hunter Biden because they're so good. They controlled the election and, you know, they beat Ukraine in a week in, in in a war in 2022. They're just so good, the Russians, that, you know, they could just manufacture a laptop uh, with uh, pictures of Hunter Biden smoking crack. Very impressive work by the Russians. He didn't say it's my laptop and this is an invasion of my privacy and how dare you. He said effectively, it's not my laptop and everything on it is a lie. So now... Well, can we just uh, can we just add yes. to the narrative, of course, then all many social media platforms refuse to allow any stories about the laptop to circulate, arguing that agreeing with the Biden uh, campaign's claim that it was misinformation. So, right. Um, in 2022, you'll be very happy to know that in 2022, both The Washington Post and CBS News under uh, undertook uh, their own forensic examination of the laptop something that the New York Post had done in 2020, and determined, yes, it's it's real. So that was really great of them, and I'm so proud of them having pretended for a couple of years that it wasn't real or whatever was on it wasn't real, that then they verified that it was real. Now, they're at public, now the Washington Post is publishing a credulous story about how Abby Lowell and his team uh, are uh, are now going aggressive against particularly John Paul McIsaac, the lap store, the laptop repair shop owner, um, for uh, stealing his, uh, you know, for like uh, stealing his property. Um, according to the Washington Post, uh, Biden's lawyers are asking state and federal law enforcement agencies to investigate individuals who came into possession of the laptop of the data, some of which could have come from a laptop he purportedly dropped off in Delaware in April 2019. So this sentence is a sleazy way of saying we still don't know whether somebody stole the laptop. Like there's any evidence or indication that someone stole the laptop. They claim that about half a dozen people have violated various statutes, including by making public restricted private information, assessing and disseminating stolen property, and making false statements to Congress. The letters are particularly focused on John Paul McIsaac. Um, they request investigations into Rudy Giuliani, Robert Costello, who is Giuliani's lawyer, and Steve Bannon, who also had the material and helped facilitate initial stories about it. Hunter Biden's attorney is also named Jack Maxey who provided the material to several news outlets, including the Washington Post uh, and Yaakov Applebaum, a former aide to Senator Ron Johnson, who McIsaac has said helped create a forensic image of the hard drive. Um, What the hell is going on here? Well, they're trying to retcon. The post here is trying to retcon what it did before, which is run cover for a lie that that the that the Bidens were pushing and that social media platforms also endorsed, which would keep this off of the uh, off out of the news cycle and protect Biden from from any sort of connection to the nefarious activities that his son was engaged in, that everyone knew his son was engaged in. Um, and then trying to argue that it was somehow stolen when there's the chain of custody issue here is fascinating because you can you can rebuild that, right? They do this in criminal cases all the time. If indeed Hunter Biden has no who else would have dropped off the who would have stolen it from him and dropped it off for repair, like uh, make it make sense. So, I mean, if he can prove that, then maybe he has a case. But the idea that 
that it seems to me most of their case is built on this idea that it was stolen from him with nefarious purposes in mind in order to harm the Bidens. And so, you know, it was then disseminated through this network of, you know, right wing, terrible people. And, you know, poor Hunter Biden, it just it just isn't plausible, given all of the information we've seen trickle out since then about Hunter's activities, about his terrible behavior, about his absolutely, you know, corrupt sort of uh, financial dealings. So, and he is under investigation, I think, not just in Delaware, right? I mean, he's got a tax case. There's a couple of federal level investigations of his of his activities. So he's in a lot of legal trouble anyway. So to strike back and have your own case, it, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but it's very Trumpian. I love I love um, the switch from the idea that um, this is not the the laptop is not legit at all to it's so legit that it's a vi- it's a violation that you have it. <clears throat> Well, I don't I mean, I don't want to read too much into this because it's a little conspiratorial, but this counteroffensive on the Post's part dovetails with a, a very offensive approach uh, to media relations by Hunter's lawyers. They're sending notes and very you know, threatening. I don't I don't think they're uh, cease and desists, but very threatening messages to people who have been banging the drum about Hunter Biden and his connections with his father and his corruption and whether or not he compromised his father in some way or his father is compromised by his activities to people like Tucker Carlson over Fox News, which makes everybody happy. You know, Hunter's being aggressive. Tucker's Tucker gets to play the victim here. And, you know, everybody assumes their roles. But, you know, really conspiratorial point of view, if you really wanted to be that kind of paranoid person. Maybe this is a concerted effort on the part of everybody who's invested in Hunter Biden and by extension, Joe Biden's political fortunes. I I don't think it's that. I think that it is. Um, there are two strategies when you're defending somebody who is in legal trouble. Like one of them is the cooperative strategy, right? One of them is whatever you want. You know, I want you to go easy on me. I'm going to be your friend and pal and all this. The other is. Uh, particularly when it's a sort of high-profile political case, is to go hyper-aggressive against the accusers. The problem is that the accusers are not Rudy Giuliani, John Paul McIsaac, this guy Maxie, and you know Giuliani's lawyer and Steve Bannon and Tucker. The accuser is the laptop. Problem is the material that Hunter had. No one's saying anything about Hunter. Hunter is saying things about Hunter in his own private file folder that is his computer. Hunter is saying, I smoke crack. Hunter is saying, the big guy takes 10%. Hunter is saying, let's do this and let's do that. There's thousands of emails and thousands of files. The Washington Post says a lot of the emails it could not independently verify. But since it could verify that the computer was Hunter Biden's, one can now presume that the Russians weren't inserting fake emails into his existing actual email box unless, you know, they're magicians and they have control over everything. It is... The question is, I don't want to quote Tom Hagen because, of course, he was defending uh, an actual mobster, but um, where does the New York Post go to get its apology? The New York Post, for which I write, as uh, people know, I'm not part of this thing. Where does it go to get its apology? We've now been saying this for two and a half years. Where does it go? Other people in the American press treated the New York Post as though it had been a vassal of Russian of a Russian disinformation project when what it did was get a leak and publish the contents of that leak. Where does the New York Post to get its apology from the Washington Post, the employer of Bob Woodward? Where does it go? When mm-hmm. is there going to be a mea culpa here? It, it never, but what the New York Post can do and has done and should do is take a big fat victory lap and 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 let everyone know that they were wrong, that they were first on the case, that they did their due diligence, and everyone else, to to use a John word, was an idiot. 
I mean, they were useful idiots. I mean, it, it, let's not use the word idiot here in its, you know, in its simply insulting. You know, the term useful idiots refers to people who in all earnestness uh, uh, serve a function that they don't know they're serving for um, a corrupted uh, well, literally you know, conduits like for Russian intelligence. Master. Yeah, subconscious multiplicators who would actually, you would, you would, without any coaching or any financial incentives, reproduce Russian narratives cooked up by the KGB and advance them uh, in order to advance the project of socialism around the world. Right, that's the original utility. <laughs> so here you're right. So like like a, the AIDS AIDS conspiracy. This is this is absolutely precisely yeah. what you describe. Right. Russians so absolutely here, want to want you to believe that they can cook up metadata about a, a fake a laptop and introduce it into a random computer shop. They absolutely want you to think they have those capabilities. Sure they don't. Do. And <laughs> but in this case, the useful idiots are what are they serving the function? They are serving the function of the Biden campaign's yeah. last three weeks. Exactly. No, they they were Biden actually campaign knew full well that that was Hunter's laptop. Hunter was a crack addict <clears throat> wandering around town. By the way, this isn't the only laptop that he somehow left somewhere. Dr. Keith Abloh, also a psychiatrist, also got his hands on some version of a Hunter Biden laptop. Guy was out of control. He himself says he was out of control. That's his only defense. He doesn't know whether he left the laptop at the computer store in Wilmington because he was high on but, crack at the but time. This, this is what's this is what's so manipulative manipulative about it though, because the Biden administration clearly at some point sat down and said, we have to have an answer to this problem, which is Hunter. And the narrative they crafted, which isn't untrue, is that you should have sympathy for our family because we're dealing with someone who has a serious addiction. Now, a lot of people have family members who have dealt with addiction. And so there is a sort of natural sympathy that one can have. A, but it, it, the thing that strikes me as being kind of egregious is how sanctimonious Biden got when anybody raised any legitimate criticism about about Hunter's behavior or about the laptop. It was like, how dare you? My son is an addict. And that now has not aged well. That part hasn't aged well. I've lost a lot of sympathy. I had a lot of sympathy when he said, you know what? Don't attack my son. It's it's a, it's a tragedy what happened to him. He's dealing with it. It's a family issue. I had a lot of sympathy for that argument. I have lost sympathy for that argument because I think it was used as cover and, and the pressure brought to bear on the mainstream media outlets that actively suppressed information that they knew to be true. I mean, I don't know. They didn't know it to be true. Well, they, maybe they, they didn't, but they didn't even try to they report about it. It's just their job, right? It was their job <laughs> yeah. to figure out if it was true yeah. and they didn't want to do clearly, that. Clearly, their credulousness, and we've had this since 2016, their credulousness about things that were manifestly not true, like... Cambridge Analytica won the election for Trump by hypnotizing Facebook users through impressions with stories. Like, anybody who uses Facebook knows, and I think a lot of people who were, like, leading the charge on this notion were not actually users of Facebook knows that it's like listening to a radio ad on you know when you're driving and it's a story on facebook like it's an impression it doesn't convince you you have to click on it 99 of the things that are in your feed you don't click on and i don't care how much was pro-trump or anti-hillary or whatever you know that doesn't make that doesn't win elections in three states that doesn't and win you eighty-eight thousand extra votes in three states that then win the election that's and also not the, how the, the, the world works and also the context of the amount of ad and dollars spent and impression time both campaigns both the hillary's campaign and trump's campaign spent a great deal more money even if you accept that that cambridge analytica the russian stuff was yeah. was gonna you know change people's minds it was dwarfed by what the campaigns themselves spent on ads and right anyway though i think the central point here is that when it came to Trump, because people were so frightened by his victory and were so frightened by his presidency uh, in every uh, guise, that uh, the conviction that something unholy had happened that had a kind of almost supernatural causation that was inexplicable in con in 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 uh, conventional means, so you had to find the unconventional explanation for it, persisted throughout his presidency. 
And then you get to a point where somebody says, you know what? I just got the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop and he's done a lot of bad things. But there's also stuff on this laptop that people should know that Hunter was trading on his father that proves at the very minimum the Hunter was trading on his father's name to try to drum up business, particularly in China. And and that he was conscious of this and that he and his uncle, Biden's brother, were doing this together. And that at the very least, the public should be made aware that this was going on. We have no evidence. There's only very circumstantial evidence that ties Biden himself to any of these efforts. A couple of suggestive emails and others, but nothing, you know, no, obviously nothing even resembling a smoking gun. But you can say the Biden family was seeking to monetize the name of the vice president of the United States in going around the world, trying to do business with some very shady characters and with a nation that is increasingly viewed as our adversary. That is not going to win the election for Trump, in my view. A smoking gun might have won the election for Trump, but this this case just simply would have bolstered, you know, the discomfort that a lot of people had with Biden, who were already going to vote for Trump. Doesn't matter. Pretending that it, pretending that this was fake, is a is a very low moment for the American media, and particularly low moment for the American intelligence community in these fifty. It's like we'll now just believe anything about Trump. We are now going to believe anything if well, what's necessary is for Trump to be defeated. We will believe that a laptop with thousands of documents on it, including you know, was manufactured in Murmansk by a you know by a unit of the you know former KGB. It's a low moment, Come but on. Yeah. But but the media who 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 are that were complicit in this continue to pay a price for it <clears throat> in that they're not trusted now. Uh when it when a store when when there's a take on a story, um people say, oh is this like the hunter like the hunter laptop? Um and, right. and they should be skeptical. But and I think also, this goes to something Noah said about Tucker, right? So Tucker Carlson has been sent this le- one of these aggressive little letters. Though apparently it's about a, a different issue. It has to do with whether or not uh, Hunter was paying his father rent. I can't quite follow the what it is that was so egregious about saying that Hunter might have been paying his father rent. But okay, this is where the strategy comes in because this is saying uh, Tucker Carlson it's we're doing this and you have to like us for doing this because we're going after Tucker Carlson also. And he's bad. He's evil. He's a bad person. And so is Rudy. So is Steve Bannon. And so is Tucker. And so it's like putting a little um, meal topper on your dog's food to go after Tucker in the middle of all this. So that the press is like, you know, the liberal press is like, Oh yeah, he's going after Tucker. This will really get Tucker. He's lying about Hunter. He's t- telling not to a bad story about Hunter and they're going to go, Ooh, they're, they're so aggressive, you know, like, so basically this is just a PR strategy. Uh, you're sending preposterous letters claiming things that are not true to federal officials and law enforcement people and private citizen sending a letter to, you know, like the U S attorney somewhere saying you must prosecute so-and-so for this. You think, you think that they didn't you think that this didn't wasn't worked out already it's 2023 the laptop was left in 2019 john paul mcisaac says i owned the laptop by the time i gave it to rudy you think he just pulled that out of out of thin air i think if you leave a pair of shoes at at your at your cobbler and you don't come back to it i know there are many jewish jokes about this you know you leave a pair of shoes 40 years later you come back you're like, do you have my shoes? And the and the guy, the you know, shoes shoe store owner says, was they wingtips? Yeah, they were wingtips. Was they black with a with a with a, a brown uh, trim? Yeah, you know, what was it? Yeah, you have them. They'll be ready Tuesday. Like that's that's what you think is that he keeps it there for forty years, but in fact, doesn't have to keep it there. It's his shoe. They're his shoes. After a while. Well, can someone get the Biden family some Apple AirTags? Uh, I mean, 
the the whole <laughs> lot of them leave everything everywhere, right? Diaries, Hunter's leaving his laptop somewhere. His, his daughter's yeah. got the the diary. Yeah. Biden's littering classified documents all around the <laughs> Eastern Seaboard. They could run a Super Bowl ad for the air tag just yeah. with the Biden family. That's yeah. brilliant. Oh my god, what a brilliant, what a fantastic <laughs> idea. You know, if, if you know, if SNL weren't uh, weren't uh, pusillanimous, it, it could it, that would be great. Yeah. It's like, or, but of course, laptops do have their own air tag. You know, they have find my friends or whatever. You can find your laptop, but it is, I know Ashley, but they're leaving. Ashley but leaves her diary at somebody's house. Who leaves your diary? Like, have you ever heard of somebody leaving their, I've literally never, what? I've never heard of such a thing. I don't know if you grew up with sisters as I did, you had that thing locked down every time you left your room with the little key, the little <laughs> tiny, little, key. little tiny, <laughs> the tiny key. Yeah. Anyway, Abe, that is a brilliant point, and I so I think we have the they need air tags, and somebody should do a, a Super Bowl ad about how to secure your property if you're a Biden. Both brilliant, and I wish we were going to pursue them, but. Uh, Again, what we have here is a shift in the story. The story is Hunter Biden's lawyers acknowledge that the laptop is his and that what's bad here is that people accessed his private information. And that's a big step. Like we're, we're we've moved into a different element of this story. We had, of course, yesterday also the search of Biden's Rehoboth beach house this would have been a very big deal if they had found classified if they actually found classified documents at, Reho at, at biden's rehoboth beach house which we hear they didn't because the beach house was purchased after his vice presidency so the beach house i think he only moved into in the fall or the winter of uh, like the fall of 2017 if there had been classified documents at the beach house that would have meant that somebody actively chose to transport them from a place that he might have carelessly left them, but would have chosen to transport them somewhere. And that would have shown conscious, not just sloppiness, but conscious decision-making. But why isn't and, that demonstrated by the existence of documents from his time in the Senate? Those had to be absconded from a secure location on Capitol Hill. There's willful intent well, there. Well, yeah, the Senate I, we, documents aren't getting as much attention, but I agree. No, that's, that's the biggest the, biggest problem here. If the Senate documents, by, by the way, I, 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 so this shows you that maybe despite Dick Durbin interestingly attacking Biden for the way the classified documents are held, if that stuff was from, let, let's say, the mid-90s, that they were getting a lot less. I mean, it's entirely plots like here, you know, I'm going to take, I'm going to read this on my way home. Like I'm going to put it cause I take the train every day to visit my family. Cause I'm such a family man. I'm going to be on the Amtrak. So I'm going to take it in my briefcase. What we don't know what the story is, but, but, um, but obviously it's, you know, you're not supposed to do what he did. Um, you know, if I were Biden, you know what I would do? At the end of this year, if this goes the way it's going, I would like pardon a whole bunch of people who uh, mishandled classified information. I, I'm I'm not I'm not kidding. Like I would if he goes if he like gets a slap on the wrist or there's like a report from this special prosecutor that he mishandled it, but obviously he didn't have intent and blah, 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 but you know it was really bad. You know, Biden should probably pardon a whole bunch of people. Including Trump, been... I mean that's the problem. Well, that Trump hasn't have... been a Trump hasn't been arrested or accused. I guess right, so he could right. preemptively. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I whatever. Okay, let's move on to a much another interesting press story, um, that is fascinating in its uh, complete um, distortion of of what's going on, and an actual a moment to celebrate in the culture wars, at least from a conservative intellectual academic and educational perspective which which is the a decision by the um college board to revise its current iteration or a future iteration of the african american studies advanced placement exam for high school students 
uh, to remove critical race theory. And it, I think theory in general from the exam, as I understand it, that it will it will be about history, it will be about facts, it will be about, the, and it will leave theory about why it does and such happen and simply concentrate on history. And this is in response to the third largest state in the union, Florida, announcing that it would not uh, permit the administration of an AP exam to public high schools that featured this material. Now, by the way, California, I should say one thing, California and other large states have changed the nature of standardized testing or do it constantly because they are in textbooks and stuff like that, because they are enormous clients and customers of these textbook companies and testing companies and stuff like that. And they, they often, you know, futz around with these tests and these companies claiming they don't want this or that or the other thing on the test. And the companies submit because they, you know, they want 38 million I don't know what the popular the kid populations of California, but they want those kids to buy their textbooks or they want those kids to take their tests. So there is nothing unusual about about the college board futzing around with its material because a state education department complains about something or other on the test. Anyway, that's my the end of my list. Okay, so, so my how, I'm I, sorry. I, I, I have a very brief point just because especially because the way John um laid it out. So how can they be teaching history if they're not teaching critical race theory? We were told the critical race theory is merely teaching history. Right. So by <laughs> definition, if you're teaching theory, this is the point ultimately, which is and by the way, you have this in colleges, right? In this is where which is this, where it belongs. This is advanced coursework. I mean, these are advanced by the way, it courses. doesn't belong in colleges either, because English departments and history departments and classics departments and all of that are now increasingly not teaching the thing in itself, the subject in itself, but the theory of the subject. So if you're an art historian, you are dealing with the theory of art history rather than did Titian know Botticelli, you know, did so-and-so where, what was going on in Florence in the, you know, in the 15th and 16th centuries that created this, you know, in, uh, unprecedented insane arts explosion. Like that's what art history is now or increasingly. And if you're in an English department in it, you you learn theory of language. You don't learn, you know, sort of uh, the change in the, you know, in the 18th century English literature from the picaresque to the naturalistic and stuff like that. That would that is about the thing in itself and not the and not the idea. So if you're a high school student, the whole point is what you should be learning in African American history is what was it? Who was it? What, where, when did this happen? When was this slave revolt? When was this massacre? When the, did Harriet Tubman do this? When did Zora Neale Hurston publish Their Eyes Were Watching God? I mean, that's what African-American history is because that's what history is. They don't the, call it African-American history. They call it studies, right? So that's that's the broad rubric that allows them to shove any thing they want to in for the brainwashing purposes. And the, the defense of critical race theory was that that's what it was. That it was that it was that it was history, that it was African American history. And if you don't want critical race theory, what you're saying is you don't want your kids to be taught African American history or 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 American history and that as is what it, is being as pertains said. To, to right. And that is what is being said right now, right? So, um I'll give you another interesting I'll give you another weird example because there's I mean, there's uh, what apparently the Florida Department of Education specifically targeted some things that it didn't want taught. One of them apparently is Tanahasi Coates's "Between the World and Me." So some people I respect, like Caitlin Flanagan, of course, works with Tanahasi Coates, so she may have an argument again, argument of interest here. But like, this is terrible. Tanahasi Coates should be taught. Well, okay. See, 
in my book, Tanahosa should not be taught, not because I don't like the book, though I don't, and I don't like his arguments, and I don't, and I think he's a, a second-rate charlatan, which I do, but because the book was published seven years ago. It was published seven years ago. So maybe learn something deeper that has lasted longer and makes a more important and 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 enduring argument than you know somebody somebody gave my son a dirty look on the elevator so i wrote 50,000 words about it and sold this, 5 million copies but this is where i actually think that that desantis has scored a really important victory in terms of both transparency, because we should recall that the college board does not like to give up information about what's in its courses. And so this was all kind of done by the college board. They develop their courses. They don't they'd have no uh, requirement to share what's in the course. So initially, this this came from leaks. People were leaking what was in this course to to writers. Uh, Stanley Kurtz at National Review has written several really good thorough uh, analyses of both what was in the curriculum, but and also what was in the teacher's guides. And the real problem um, it was this last bit of the course, which looks at what what like movements and controversies, right? That became movements and debates in African American history. That was highly politicized material. It was it was very Marxist. It was Robin D. G. Kelly. It was a lot of a lot of historians who who have a very narrow perspective. And that was all that was on offer. You know, they were going to read about the movement for Black Lives. They're going to read about Marxist, you know, Afrocentrism. Black all queer, this stuff. Black queer, yeah, black queer studies. That was packed in the last bit. So what DeSantis did is say, you know what? That's not enough. Like there's more to this story. You can have you can read Tanahese Coates, but you should talk about the long history of debate within the African American community about reparations because there are competing views. You should talk about the long history of conservative social thought in African American history. Tons of African American um intellectuals have debated these things for for more than a century. None of that was included. It was very presentist. The other thing is they didn't look at politicians. They didn't look at African American political leaders, which is a huge um uh blind spot really and and it should have been uh included in, in large part because a lot of contemporary African American leaders came out of the civil rights movement and brought with them tactics for organization and a political worldview that was heavily shaped by that so there's all these stories that you can tell which might include one or two more contemporary articles towards the end but they have to be grounded in this is the end of a long story that's been going on a long series of intellectual debates within the african-american community and so by pointing out just how politicized particularly that last half of the course was desantis forced the college board to justify what they'd done and they caved they caved because there was no legitimate intellectual defense they could mount to that charge well, they caved because they had caved in the first place. The structure of the course was a right. cave to fashionable thinking exactly. in the world of African-American studies. And no one ever pushes back against that kind of thing. So what they, what they did by structuring the test the way they structured it was to grease the squeaky wheel which was the you know which was this academic world and then another a lot another squeaky wheel came on and said i don't eh, hold on and then like oh man i thought we'd we'd just we'd just leave us alone what can we do to make you leave us alone like you're now you're actually scaring us they scared us in a different way you're scaring us in another way noah do you um I think we kept interrupting you, so. I don't have very much to add <laughs> to this conversation. Everybody's covered okay. just about all the bases. Okay, uh, so that's the larger <laughs> that's the larger point. So let's talk about the politics here, which is the screaming and yelling and hysteria over uh, DeSantis spiking African-Americans refusing to teach African-American studies in Florida. <laughs> um, it is astounding to me that this is what we have a state education department for. The governor of a state that administers a public education system is supposed to oversee the curriculum in that system. This is not a free speech issue. Teachers in public school systems do not, do not have academic freedom Here's what that I don't understand. Not... Yes. Okay. So the details of this uh, reform are very narrow. 
the review of the African-American studies course <clears throat> that was undertaken by this board and has subsequently produced this reformed curriculum only excludes from its mandatory lesson plan studies on intersectionality as part of critical race theory. And then the keyword here is mandatory. You can do it. You can voluntarily engage in these studies. You can voluntarily write your mandatory 1500 word project on intersectional themes, Black Lives Matter, reparations debate, Black queer life, expressions of Black communities, and intersectionality. That's all available to you, and it's academically viable. Intersectionality, as I understand it, having read quite a lot of Kimberly Crenshaw Williams, having written a book on I'm social so justice. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, you, enough to you, grasp you, you it. Took, you, took, you, took, you took one for the team there. Intersectionality Noah. is not Black history. Intersectionality is as a as a thought experiment has some value, but as a thought experiment, it is a, a layers an academic gloss over a popular front mentality. It is the study of stereotypes, compels you to marinate in stereotypes. So you think of people as groups and in, in negative terms, uh, and then apply those broadly so that you understand that while some stereotypes apply to women and some stereotypes apply to black people that a black woman would experience two sets of stereotypes that's basically the theory and and they'll advocates for it will make it much more complicated than that but that's what it is which renders it not the study of african-american history it is a study of a particular feature of left-wing black activism which extends by definition because of the theory is is so broad to all groups and all peoples and everybody within the American context. And it's only within the American context. It's very jingoistic because, for example, it applies American stereotypes to to Jews. And in the American context, Jews are a very successful people. And so they don't they don't make it up the rungs of the ladder of oppression. Um, if you were to apply that framework to any other society on the planet Earth, say maybe Israel, it wouldn't shake out that way. Nevertheless. It's, it It is a broad study of stereotypes and oppression and racism across a whole spectrum of uh, the American uh, demographic uh, you know, spectrum. So how is this the study of African-American studies at all? If anything, it is a dilution of well, the focus on, on the black I, experience in America. Yeah, I think what they I think the argument would be. Um... If you're going to, especially in that last part of the course, I have kids who are taking AP or history this year. So I'm like very, I, I, seeing how they break this all out. First of all, if you have a radical teacher who wants to radicalize an African-American AP, AP history class, they will find a way to do it. That You can't prevent that. But what I think this pushback from, from Florida and DeSantis did is, is make the college board, if you're going to teach intersectional theory as, as having grown out of the African-American experience or having been, you know, the, this modern uh, way of, you know, critically looking mm -hmm. at the past and the present, you have to teach competing uh, and critical views of that. So if you're going to teach about, you know, uh, the Black Panthers, which I think kids should learn about, it's an important part of our history. You've also got to teach about the, the African-American leaders who oppose the Black Panthers approach. If you're going to teach Marxist intersectionality, you have to teach free market Thomas Sowell type stuff too. Like the idea is you've got to, I mean, I hate to say this because it gets you into the creationist science stuff, but like teaching the controversy is actually what this is about. And there are tons of controversies in our contemporary political debate about race that we're not going to be taught in this course. Saying, I, I get the but, criticisms of it from their own perspective perspective using their own language their own objectives and their own stated purpose of this course it does the opposite of its intended purpose by refocusing you on other experiences of other demographics in this country that have nothing to do with black people but that's what they want they want they want indoctrination in theory to be mandatory right. and and you that's precisely understand. that's precisely what DeSantis denied them and and the the beauty of it is it's saying you don't get to own the mainstream, not without a fight. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. And children wanna... are just, frankly, high school students are ill-equipped to engage in criticism of anything. Except well, their parents, except their parents fully in my experience. Well, unless you right. fully apprehend all the, you know, the, the basics and they're trying to move on from the base. Obviously, this is now obviously right. trying to move on from the basics so that they can, you know, get right to the, the critical theory of it. And, and you're ill-equipped to criticize the criticism. 
Can I talk about my own? I mean, this is now we're going back, you know, almost 50 years, but my, in, in high school. So I, in 10th grade, I remember very little about high school, to be honest. But in 10th grade, I had a course. The course was called American Chronology, the year-long course. And it was a course that went through American history from 1620 until, you know, close to the present. Chronologically. That was the organizing principle was just follow history by date. Um, this was without question the single best school experience of my entire life from nursery through university. Um, because at a good, at a proper moment when my memory, my focus, my ability to sort of, you know, suck in information was at pretty close to its height. I learned American history. I didn't learn it in depth. I didn't learn it. I didn't learn a lot of complication in relation to it. But, you know, I know when I have since known when the Gilded Age was, I knew something about what happened during the reign of Andrew Jackson. I knew stuff about the know-nothings. I knew about the debates before the Civil War, the Missouri Compromise. I learned about the Gilded Age. I learned about the Progressive Era. I, You know, all, all of that that then provided me with the platform or the base from which I could go more deeply into controversy. That is the root of education, in my view. And if you're going to teach African-American studies to kids, I'm not talking about graduate students who can waste their lives learning garbage like intersectionality and poison their own brains and waste what could be a profitable existence on nonsense, but fine. They get to choose. They're in their late teens, early twenties, whatever. This is a moment in time when intellectually curious or even just simply present people in a classroom at the age of 15, 16, 14, 15, 16 can take in an enormous amount of information that will provide them without much ideological grounding with a real basis for future explorations of more complex topics. And what this stuff does is it jumps to the complexity before the facts, right? It's like the whole notion that if you're a poet, you need to learn how to write a sonnet before you should do free verse because you need to know the structure before you know what it is to break the structure down. Or, you know, whatever. You need to learn grammar before you can start exp exploring language, even, even if you're not taught grammar in the precise way. And this, we have now simply, un without any questioning, accepted the notion that no one needs to learn facts and details. All they need to learn is ideology, which is what theory is, basically. And... It's like the music. The entire thing has now become the music man. Just think and you'll be able to play the trombone. Uh, you don't have to learn how to, I mean, Christine's our musician here, but you don't have to learn how to, how to, how to cut your own double reed, how to cut a reed for your oboe. Uh, or bassoon. <laughs> well, your sister was is an oboist. She was an oboist. So. Yeah, she actually okay, made yeah. more, many more reads than I did in my day. Yeah. So yeah. But I mean, you know, you don't have to learn how to play the bassoon. You just think la di da di da di da di da, <laughs> and then it'll come out. That is how the charlatan and the music man convinces the people in River City, Iowa, to buy instruments that he, no one will know how to teach them to play. But this that is what this is but this is why the the pushback and i and we should say this is not in a broader sense this isn't just a pushback from desantis he's getting all this heat he took the heat i think he you, we can definitely score this as a victory for him but there is a broader i'm not going to call it a culture war because i think what it is is a pendulum swing back to what you're talking about john and that's parents saying wait a minute we trusted the public education system to be this place where you can you can um your kids are going to learn this stuff the basics right they're, they have realized, particularly uh, since during the pandemic and after, that that's not at all what's happening in the public education system. And so what they need, what they are demanding from their elected officials in Virginia, Glenn Youngkin 
went to victory on this message. It's more transparency. We want to know what these schools are teaching our kids and why they're teaching them that. We do not want our kids indoctrinated with, with um, you know, decision-making about their private sexual identities. We think that you should teach them to read and to write and to do arithmetic. But that but that message, actually, it when it's presented, and on this, I would argue, I think Youngkin has a lighter touch in his messaging than DeSantis does right now. And maybe DeSantis should learn a little from watching how Youngkin did this. There is a vast middle of parents and not just parents, but a vast middle of moderately minded voters who for whom this makes sense. I as want an to argument. pause it. And the, one, one other thing, they, the attack on the college board was a brilliant move because the college board is a massive cultural institution. It makes almost $900 million a year in profit, even though it's a nonprofit. Everybody dislikes it. It's kind of like the IRS of the educational system, but it controls a vast system of educational um, you know, testing and, and assessment. And so attacking the college board was kind of genius because that's a Goliath. I want to posit that we might be engaging in a category error by calling what this is in a, an assault in the culture wars. Ron DeSantis is very good at picking culture wars. In fact, there are very few he doesn't pick. He had this tweet yesterday where he was talking about the framework for the freedom budget, where he was issuing you know new sales tax credits for things like baby necessities and diapers and wipes and cloths and strollers, and of course, gas stoves. Also, over-the-counter pet medications. I'm wondering where the culture war is in the over-the-counter pet medications. He knows how to pick fights. This is not a culture war, an attack on the redefinition of education away from actual studies, the core STEM stuff, basic history, the stuff you have to know before you engage in critical thought. That's not culture warring. Maybe it's a counteroffensive in an ongoing culture war, but adherence to the essential fundamentals, the principles of education was not a culture war before there was a culture war against it. Right. I, can, I well, guess I mean, you could yeah, say it's a, it's, that's a very he, good didn't, he didn't start the war, right? He didn't start the yeah, war. He didn't start it's the not, war. It's, not, it's yeah. not a war, yeah. It's, it's not a war. I mean, and he's not the really prosecutor is. of it. Right. Well, right. He, well, that's a very, look, that's a very important point that, that, at, at, that at base and at root, what happened here was a fundamental redefinition where, where without pushback, the way that American kids were going to learn this was going to change and be different or whatever, or be, you know, before anybody had any chance to review it or say, what the hell is this? Now you say parent, I mean, this is, this gets me like, so we both have, you know, teenagers and I'm, you know, I'm 14 years older than you are, 13 years older than you are. And so when I, but you know, the, the we have people then who are considerably younger than we who have kids in high school also, and they have all. I come from just when everything started to change badly. You come along while the changes, the bad changes are going on, and then we have like people who are in their thirties or late thirties with kids who are like they've been educated in this sort of general ambit they themselves were educated in it do they know do they what you're saying is parents are saying i want my kids to learn better but for a whole generation of parents this is how they learn too isn't it not am as I, radically am I wrong about well this? yes and no okay. i mean i think i think the i think the focus for that generation and actually noah can speak to this because he is that generation has younger kids in, in elementary school level but they but there is my my sister is that generation and her kids are now you know are young and in school they got more of the kind of social emotional learning stuff right it's like don't bully we want you to be your best you know very millennial yeah self-esteem stuff which had its own I think negative and positive impact, yeah. but there wasn't a there wasn't as much messing with the curriculum at that level. I think that was already going on at colleges. Certainly, everybody who I went right. to college with was like, "You have to read Howard Zinn. He is a genius." I'm like, "This just seems wrong." But okay, but there was a debate. There was more debate. Like you could bring up Howard Zinn in a, in a seminar, and someone would push back with, you know, Gordon Wood. Like this would happen. Now I think the curriculum changes and particularly the identity stuff. There's a shift from self-esteem boosting to identity boosting. And that is a major change. And I'm not sure a lot of parents are on board with that because that gets into the home. That gets into values that a 
family wants to tra transmit to their own children and doesn't really trust a teacher or a or a school system or a school board um, that they might have elected but not paid much attention to. to I'll do. tell you a story that <clears throat> reminds me of this. I probably am speaking out of turn. But before I moved to a dark red hillside in western New Jersey, uh, I was living in a pretty blue, very suburban area closer to the city. And my kids were going to elementary school. And uh, probably like third, no, 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 like first grade, first grade or so. And my firstborn uh, comes home uh, after, you know, a series of lessons from, and you get the impression from these lessons that they are mistrustful of their children and deeply fearful of the environments that they go home to. The teachers uh, are mistrustful. The teachers. Yeah. Because they, my, my kid comes home and... <clears throat> we're watching an entertainment product which has you know gay lifestyles in it because every entertainment product does now and the, the word gay was said and my kid repeats like a mantra gay is good and every time the word gay comes up he has to say gay is good now we don't have any problem with that we agree with that i grew up in the theater i don't care but the mantra of it was creepy it's like Pavlovian, it was, it right? Was pa <laughs> it was precisely Pavlovian that when the word was uttered, he had to say those the, that word is like a, just a talisman. And that sort of thing suggests to me that they're afraid that what they're hearing at home isn't isn't the right stuff. They have to be they have to have this it. mantra that they that they recite just as just to yeah. you know be good valuable people in society. The kids in first grade first of all, like maybe that's not necessarily valuable not this is not something that we care about frankly honestly genuinely don't really care about that what i did find absolutely creepy was that was no other word for it indoctrination right. in order for them to you know to be able to recite the right words and be part of uh, of the social contract here schools are particularly in this world that is not just curriculum but in which uh very much the idea is uh, change society or, you know, evolve society at its root by starting, you know, with very little kids and change their atmosphere and marinate them in a different set of values than the ones that were formerly the ones that happened in America. So, um, these stories in the New York Times over the last month or two months is kind of the obsessive coverage of uh, the threat to transgender teens from the larger society features these very ingenuous store articles that don't know what they're saying or don't understand how scary this is for parents, not even ideological parents. The idea that your school is actively protecting or the school is actively protecting a kid who says I am non-binary or I'm, I want to be called Nancy when my name is Joe. Uh, it gets called that. And then the school does not tell the parents. In fact, the school directs the teachers and everybody else not to tell parents that the kid is walking around his school with a different gender identity. And that this is praiseworthy rather than horrifying. These schools do not have the right to do what they are doing. They do not have, they're not even in loco parentis hardly anymore in the sense that, you know, they can't suppress, they can't say, you can't say this, you can't say that. They are doing things that are directly contradict, that are, arrogating parental powers from parents who well, have not assigned those powers to them. Well, I mean, I, even worse, they have a duty to report. If you are a teacher, you have a duty to report any sign of child abuse, correct? Right. You have, you have, mm -hmm. if you see a child has been physically abused, I mean, and, and, and in, for a lot of parents, the idea that a teacher would be secretly trying to get a kid to, to, embrace an identity that perhaps goes against the values of that family is confusing to the kid who might actually have some other kind of mental health issue that needs that the family is dealing with yeah. privately. That's, that's abuse. That is a form of emotional abuse that I think, I know the grooming debate has gotten out of control, but that is, you're absolutely right. Not only is it not their place, they actually have a duty to report it if they think a kid is in, right. in, in some sort of physical danger at home. By, so the, by, by the way, you could, you could make that case in the most um, capacious way possible for their views which is 
this case, which is trend, you know, transgender teens or kids who believe themselves to have been born, you know, wrongly identified at birth as what gender and all this, uh, according to the doctrine of this, are more likely to be suicidal, are more likely to do self harm or to take terrible risks. If you know that that kid is saying that they're transgender, the duty to report is paramount because they're under they're in they terrible high danger. Risk, yes. Yeah. And yeah. the only person who can help them in that context is their parents because their parents have to go find a mental health professional or somebody to try to cope with the possible now, we have our own ideas about why that mental health risk is so severe, uh, which I think has to do with the with the very thing that they're trying to do. But the people who believe in this think it's true also. So how are they going to help these kids simply by saying, you know what, here at school, we'll call you Nancy, but you're but, you know, it's OK. Like that. Well, and that's forcing good. a child that, to that lie to his distance. or her parents. Yeah. Yeah, forcing a child to lie and keep secrets. Yeah. yeah. That's what an abuser does, actually. Yes, an abuser exactly. says to a child, yeah. don't tell yeah. anybody about this. This is our secret. We will keep right. this secret together. That is not the role right. of a teacher. That is not a teacher's job. Right. right. So anyway, all this like did come up very fast. A lot of it came up very fast. And it's um and what's interesting about what's going on here, and I, I want to analogize this. We're going long, but I want to. Christine wrote a lot about this in 2017, 2018. So when uh, Betsy DeVos became the Secretary of Education and decided that they were going to revisit and reform the Dear Colleague letter that essentially uh, made it possible for colleges to sort of star chamber and convict males primarily of uh, charges of sexual misconduct uh, on the basis of a very lax uh, evidentiary standard. And all they did was say there needs to be more evidence. Or, yeah, you can't use a preponderance of evidence standard. You need to do this, this, and this. And there needs to be a period of uh, uh, comment. And when this was going on, they they were very meticulous about following federal procedure, right? Writing rules in the federal register, allowing periods of comment, all of this to make sure they were dotting I's, crossing T's, and changing policy in accordance with the way the policy should be changed in the federal government. They were nonetheless treated as though they were turning our campuses into into rape factories. No, she was called a rape apologist. No, it was yeah, the, right, the criticism yeah. was unreal. Right. Yeah. Right. Similarly, as Noah and Christine both have laid out, what DeSantis and Florida have have done here uh, in pursuing this argument or discussion with the college board is not only to use powers that are proper for a state education system to do, because that's what they do. They're supposed to write curricula and oversee curricula and stuff like that. Like that's that's one of the primary functions of government is to deal with the educational system and not you don't just outsource it to the college board or to, you know, black studies departments and the, you know, and their, uh, you know, annual convention where they say what they think people should study. Um, they uh, did this meticulous, like they said, as you said, they should, they, you should add this, you shouldn't have that make it more flip make it richer actually make it make make your african-american studies richer thicker uh and more substantive and for this they are being treated as though they are lester maddox you know um or george george wallace standing in the in this you know in the schoolhouse door and i think that's very self-destructive um, I mean, it, because it, it it advances the Pauline Kaleization of the Democratic bubble. That's what happened in Virginia in 2021, right? Nobody in liberal circles understood that that Yunkin was had the grasp of a populist issue that was serious because they could not hear what he was saying because their own 
their own world did not even admit of the vocabulary that you couldn't, you know. Okay. Anyway, we wanted but to. I just want to say you talk about the bubble. Um, I started reading about the the, the DeSantis uh, AP story in the New York Times, right? And it's going through it and talking about how how uh, the the potential dangers here, and, the, and I'm thinking the New York Times has a stake in this fight. How so? Uh, Abe has uh, Abe has frozen here. Uh, I think he was going to reference the Hulu documentary of the 1619 Project, which has bec- which actually does also uh, 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 yes. spin out a false fable of uh, emancipation, and and some of its episodes have like Woody Holton and other historians on who were part of the project initially, who just outright make facts up. <laughs> it's right. just untrue, and 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 admit to themselves of no uh, wrongdoing uh, in the process. That was an amazing channeling because we had a real cliffhanger here on our Zoom. Abe, <laughs> I'm guessing. I'm guessing. I'm... He was frozen at the. It has a stake because, and then he froze. And you I'm just guessing. I hope his, I was right. <laughs> you, you, you read his mind. It was very impressive. So I guess we will we will bring this now uh, to to an to an end. Uh, poor Abe has now <laughs> vanished from our Zoom screen. Um, <laughs> So for, for, for Abe and Noah and Christina, I'm John Podhoritz. We'll be back tomorrow. Keep the candle burning.